Most commencement speeches begin by telling you that the world is plagued with problems that are enslaving the human spirit. But you are among the brightest and best we have seen, the speaker says. You can make a difference. So go out there with these new degrees and use them to help us get to the promised land. That's not my message. I don't need to convince you that our world is addicted to empire building and racism and injustice, or that it is in such serious climate trouble that our future is in question. I don't need to convince you that our world has become so crazed with guns that we tolerate mass shootings of people of color and of even our children. No, I don't need to convince you that we are in deep trouble. And I sure hope you know that it's gonna take a lot more than this new degree to get us to the promised land. The way the Exodus story begins is with God hearing the cries of the people and coming down to set them free. But in the Hebrew mind, for things to get so bad that Almighty God has to come down here was not a comfort. When the e Hebrews left slavery in Egypt, Moses led them directly to Mount Sinai for a terrifying worship service. Exodus 19, verse six, hear it again. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all of the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Notice how different this is from most of our contemporary experiences of worship. No one found this service to their liking. Afterwards, no one complained to the pastor, you know, I don't particularly care for trumpets in worship. No, all of the people in the camp trembled at the revelation of holy God in their midst. Now, since the Hebrews had spent 400 years in slavery, we would have thought their first worship service with God would have been more consoling. Since there was a long, long journey to get to the promised land, we would have thought this was a great time for encouragement you can do it. But no, their first encounter with the liberator God was filled 
with terrifying awe. Why? Because the mission of getting to the promised land could not succeed unless the people knew what it meant to fear God. In the words of Philip Brooks, if we do not fear the God above us, we will fear everything around us. And if we do fear the God above us, we will fear nothing around us. That is the grace of worshiping a consuming fire. There are so many reasons to be afraid of the long journey ahead of you. The obstacles of inadequate resources and complaint are legion and relentless. They will scorn your dreams. They will give you grave doubts that make you fear there even is a promised land. There will be days when you think that all there is is just wandering through the desert. But you will certainly never make it to the promised land if you are afraid of the obstacles, and you will inevitably be afraid of them if you do not fear the holy God who is calling you on this journey of ministry and scholarship and public service. We are creatures made in the image of God, which means that whether we realize it or not, we all yearn to encounter holiness. When we live too long without anything that transcends or inspires or compels us to bend our knees, our souls began to wither and a passionless fearing of the world is all that is left. But holiness scares us because we are not holy. So we're rather ambivalent about awe. We're drawn to the holy by the insatiable thirst of our souls and yet repelled with fear of being consumed by holy judgment. So it is not surprising that the church's favorite way of handling holiness is by domesticating it into something we can manage. That's why there's so much talk about God's politics or God's principles for successful living, or God's plan for the family, or God's will about the war. It's always striking how much God's ideology will always look like our own. And maybe that's because it's just ourselves written in capital letters. If your idea of holiness does not include God being a fire, then it is not holiness at all. As you leave here, and the years begin to pile up on your journey of serving a liberating God, 
and what was once reverence and awe has been diluted by your own busyness. Remember what I did, God said to the Hebrews. Remember how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Remember that it was I, the Lord your God, who changed your destiny and set you free. Remember that I am the Lord your God and obey my voice. Obey God's voice? We don't even hear God's voice most of the time because it is drowned out by all of the other voices. Voices claiming that you're never going to make it to the promised land unless you try harder and achieve more because you're really just on your own. You're not going to get there unless you buy something else that will distract the yearning for awe or unless you choose your side in the competing factions that are tearing apart the Republic. But when we take Sabbath rest from all of the voices swirling around us and enter authentic worship, then we remember. We remember that we have not remembered the voice of God. We remember that we have broken through our created limitations. We have created idols of our own making and we have made an unholy mess. We remember we could never climb the mountain to find God. It is too high, and we have fallen too low and did not obey even our own standards. Then, then as we get near the bottom of our confession, we also remember that holiness has climbed down to us once again. Because in Jesus Christ, holy God was dying to forgive our sins. The author of the book of Hebrews is fascinated by how this coming of Jesus Christ has transformed our relationship to holy God. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. But you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now listen carefully. Therefore, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. What? 
On this side of the grace of Jesus, are we still talking about God as a consuming fire? Well, maybe you thought the New Testament offered a kinder, gentler God than the Old Testament. No. What has changed between the Old and New Covenant is not God, but you. In Christ, you are forgiven and the holy image of God is restored in you. In Christ, you are free to reveal this holiness with your own mercy. In Christ, you are given communion with God who is still a consuming fire. And we still fear this holiness but this is not the fear of being judged. Now it is the fear of having a God who was literally dying to love us. How do you control a God like that? How do you control a God who will go even to the cross to find us? How do you rein in such passion with your careful plans for your own life. You don't. There is too much wild, holy passion for that. Authentic love is never controlled. It controls us, and that's why we fear it. You have no idea where the love of God will take you, but it will probably lead you to a life you could never have imagined. It may take you to a place you would rather not go. It may take you back to the people from whom you were hoping Jesus was rescuing you. It may put you on a road that is long and hard and often not particularly fulfilling. It will certainly take you to a place that is not just, equitable, or compassionate because those are the places in need of Jesus' redeeming love. Love has its own direction. It's not just a comfort along the way. It is the way, the truth, and the life. And wherever the love of God in Jesus Christ is taking you, that is the promised land. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.